Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. With me this week will be Dr. Paul Henlicke. Dr. Henlicke is the author of Divine Complexity, The Rise of Creedal Christianity. Um, Dr. Henlicke has had a long and illustrious career um, as a theologian in the Lutheran Church. Um, he is the, the book in question for today um, is important for our conversations that we've had on the podcast uh, because it considers the relationship between philosophy and theology. So we've had uh, several proponents of, of sort of Platonic Christianity or classical theism, and Dr. Hinlicky reminds us of the importance of Scripture in even critiquing some of those natural philosophical positions. Um, so I felt, felt like this could add a, a different uh, dynamic uh, to some of the conversations that we've had, so I appreciated him uh, taking the time out to talk with us. Uh, he is also on a podcast called The Queen of the Sciences, uh, a podcast that he does with his daughter. Um, so I'd recommend that you check out that podcast. Um, I think this episode may also air in their podcast stream. Uh, but but yeah, appreciated Dr. Hinlicky and his daughter, Sarah, uh, for reaching out and, and look, w- working out this collaboration. Uh, we will have some more podcasts coming out with uh, in the stream. Um, I've got some stuff lined up. Um, on a few different topics, including uh, divine violence in the Old Testament um, and some stuff on worship as well. Um, so, so do stay tuned. Um, sorry for the delay on getting podcasts out. It has been a busy season. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Paul Hinlicky. Today on A History of Christian Theology, I have uh, the pleasure of speaking with Paul Hinlicky. Um, and uh, Dr. Hinlicky is, uh, um, among other positions, is the Tease Professor at Roanoke College, um, as well as a docent of systematic theology at Comenius University in Slovakia. Um, and uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about a book, I guess it was published a few years ago, um, but it, it overlapped with a lot of things that we have discussed over the last basically year or so on the podcast, which is, um, you know, the title of the book is uh, Divine Complexity, The Rise of Creedal Christianity. And part of the conversation within the book is over the the nature and relationship between what we might call broadly um, either sort of classical metaphysics or a kind of a platonic metaphysics and how that uh, interplays uh, with um, revealed theology. Um, and and so um, Dr. Hinlicky has done a lot of work on on that. So um, I was very grateful and, and uh, to have his daughter and uh, he uh, reach out to me um, about doing kind of an overlap episode because you also do a podcast called The Queen of the Sciences. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Chad. We do a pod. Now we're entering our fifth year and we're doing pretty well with it. It's It's been a great project uh, to work with my daughter who lives half a world away. So this is <laughs> a chance for us to have regular theological conversations. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, and you guys are both uh, Lutheran, is that correct? Yes, I'm a, a ordained minister of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and so is she. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I guess. Uh, well, Dr. Carey goes to an Anglican church, but he has kind of Lutheran influences. I was going to say I don't know if we've had someone who identify like who is a definitive Lutheran on the podcast. Um, well, yeah, you're so you may be the first. I, yeah, I'm ready to rock and roll on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, very good. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. Um, 
So, um, yeah, I guess we could we could almost just start with the title itself. Um, so it's called Divine Complexity, which is obviously a, uh, a has some bears some relationship to divine simplicity. Um, and uh, so maybe uh, would you mind talking a little bit about uh, wh why why that title um, and how that plays into sort of the central argument of the book? Yeah, thanks, Chad. Um, the title came about last. And, and okay. in fact, I was, di you know, dialoguing with the editor at Fortress Press about what to call this book. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, originally, the title was simply The Theology of the Nicene Creed. Okay. But um, uh, after I finished the book, I was looking for a more a title that would be more communicative. And the project of the book is to um, protest against the idea that the church doctrine of the divine trinity achieved in Constantinople in 381 was simply uh, um, a superficially painted over Christianized version of the Neoplatonic trinity mm. um, of absolute mind replicating itself in the logos, which contains all implicit ideas uh, implicitly contains all possible ideas, which then cascade down in a great chain of being to organize matter into a cosmos. Uh, and this is kind of a, a standard critique issuing from uh, um, the criticism of dogma that originated in German Lutheranism in the 19th century. Um, the famous statement that the history of dogma is the critique of dogma. So that entire tradition uh, that was trying to expose the doctrine of the Trinity as nothing but thinly veiled Neoplatonic cosmological Trinity. Uh, that was the target uh, of my, um, um, the final results of my study. And I wanted to show on the contrary that there is, to use anachronistic language, the economic Trinity of the gospel narrative. Namely, the God of Israel, whom Jesus addressed as Abba Father, and in turn perceived himself to be addressed as the Beloved Son, and the dramatic interaction between these two in the course of the story of, of Jesus from his birth uh, through his uh, life, ministry, death, resurrection, etc. Uh, all of that mediated by a third, namely mm. the one named the Holy Spirit. So to use anachronistic language, the so-called economic trinity, the trinity of revelation. I wanted to show that it was from thinking through the trinity of revelation that we come to uh, the dogma of the Council of Constantinople in 381. And that meant that you had to have a different starting point than the Western tradition of assuming the metaphysics of divine simplicity as a foundational platform on which to then erect the revealed trinity. Um, rather, um, you have to begin with the Jesus and the Spirit as economic agents who lead um, to the knowledge uh, of the one true God. As Basil the Great would say in the time around 381, the way of knowledge goes from the Spirit through the Son to the Father. And that is the divine complexity that I was trying to, to illustrate in the book. Mm. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, richness in there. One of the things that I kind of heard you say, and maybe is a little bit in the background of the book too, is the kind of uh, I think you know uh, I'm I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but Robert Jensen says something like God is whoever, having raised Israel from the dead, or having uh, rescued Israel from Egypt, raised Jesus from the dead. Um, and you kind of add in the the sort of the Holy Spirit in that as well, um, sort of thinking through the fullness of the Trinity. Um, but but I've always liked I use that uh, actually that line from Jensen whenever I teach Intro to Theology, um, just because I you know I like the way that it in, in captures uh, kind of this like the necessity of understanding God through uh, revelation. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you bring up Robert Jensen because he's definitely a factor and influence. In, in the writing of my book. <clears throat> but I have to give you a little background. Yeah. I actually did the research and, and first drafting of this book in the 1990s when I was teaching in post-communist Slovakia. Mm. Uh, and I discovered there that my students preparing for ministry had a curriculum that basically took them from the New Testament to Martin Luther to Friedrich Schleiermacher. Three big leaps, <laughs> you know, and, and they knew nothing about, next to nothing about what had transpired in between, except mm. the cliches, you know, about early Catholicism or uh, medieval scholasticism, the typical uh, uh, Protestant uh, exacerbated by 19th century liberal Protestant uh, cliches about um, the history of theology. And so I, I, I created a course trying uh, to explain, working through um, the Gospel of John onto Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp, what I call the 19th, uh, second century theology of the martyrs, on through Irenaeus, and their great battles Christologically against Docetism and mm -hmm. theologically against Gnostic dualism uh, for the unity of the Genesis to Revelation canon uh, that has to be inwardly parsed uh, by the creedal uh, actors, the Almighty Father who creates heaven and earth, his Son, Jesus Christ, and their Holy Spirit. And so that was the origins of, of this book. And uh, it was only after I decided to publish it, uh, years after I'd left Slovakia, that I had read Jens Jensen's Systematic Theology and realized the affinity of much of what I was saying with some of his, his insights. Though maybe you noticed in the conclusion of the book, I'm a little bit cautious about some of Jensen's metaphysics. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I did not, I was just sort of perusing the, um, the ending of the book this morning. Um, and, uh, I, I didn't quite, I, I actually didn't pick up on that. Uh, maybe I, I missed it in my, um, uh, my hurriedness to try to get through the end, but would you mind saying a little bit more about that? What, what is yeah. it that makes you so cautious? Yeah, I think that, I think that there's no question that the New Testament literature somehow presupposes what is called awkwardly the pre-existence of the sun. Um, the, and the mm -hmm. word became flesh. So there's a divine becoming that mm -hmm. is appropriately predicated of the Logos who was uh, God, uh, who takes on, uh, becomes, we have to unpack what that means, but, but somehow there's a becoming 
which is in traditional theology called the assumption of the flesh or the assumption of the body-soul unity in Christ and so forth. And Jensen kind of wants to, uh, in his polemic against an unflushed logos, a logos asarcos, um, he wants to uh, remove the gap between the transcendent logos and the incarnate logos. Um, Now, at least that's how he's often understood. Uh, I think he is a little bit more subtle than that, but I don't think he expresses himself very clearly there because I think it is important uh, to affirm that there is, as Jensen also wants to affirm, that there's something dramatic and decisive uh, in the middle of hu- creaturely history for the word to become flesh. Mm. Yeah, it, it reminds me of an interview I did with uh, a, a kind of a up-and-coming theologian, uh, Jordan Wood, um, who's also now located in St. Louis, um, and he's from Missouri, incidentally, but he wrote a book on Maximus the Confessor, um, and his the title of it is, is it Creation is Incarnation? Um uh-huh. And, and, you know, so he's trying to uh, sort of think through maybe some of n- not so much the pre-existent element, but but sort of the later element of of sort of becoming and the unity of of creation with the incarnation. Uh, I, often I was thinking about his book because it, it sort of takes up the kind of the challenge of Chalcedon, where a lot of what your work does almost gets us up to to Chalcedon or gets us a little, you know, to Constantinople really. Uh, but the, the kind of the bleeding edge of a lot of theology right now, I feel like, um, and even with Bruce McCormick's book, um, is trying to figure out exactly how, how that kind of Christology works. Yeah. I would simply comment about that, that, that the problem with Chalcedon is that it only gives lip service to the unity of person and Mm -hmm. that hypostasis has to be understood with the same Trinitarian density it has at Constantinople in order to make sense of any kind of two natures doctrine. Mm. That, that would, and so the, the, the Christology that follows after 381 is predicated upon this, uh, fully, uh, this Trinitarian personal hypostatic, uh, doctrine. Uh, and that has to be borne in mind so that we don't get, um, bushwhacked, by uh, what Jensen calls unbaptized notions of divine or human nature, which Mm -hmm. then somehow we have to uh, mash together into some kind of unity rather than understanding that the personal reality of Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. And that's where I'm very much with Jensen, that Jesus does not signify the Logos, Jesus is the Logos, Mm -hmm. that that's the Christological uh, payoff that I would like to uh, cash in on. Yeah. Well, and, and even that notion of like the, the difficulty of baptizing um, some of the the natures and it, part of the whole book is sort of how much uh, Greek uh, philosophy or how much philosophy is sort of acceptable because you, uh, and as, as sort of, as I understand it, you don't want to sort of get behind uh, the God of the Bible um, by, by, either by historical criticism or by metaphysics. Um, and so like one of the things that I noticed um, and uh, that, that I thought you might, I might uh, appreciate, you know, some elaboration or comment was like, uh, I think it's on page 18, but you talk about uh, the division of labor in theology had critical philosophy or natural theology telling us what the divine is really. 
um, and then in parentheses you say really what it is not, then revealed theology telling us rather what this not is and how it relates itself to us. Um, so you, would you sort of um, mind unpacking a little bit like for you, what is the, because the, it seems like what you're um, sort of elucidating is a similar conviction about the nature of how uh, theology, well, you, there is me using that word nature, but uh, sort of how theology is to proceed. Yeah, um, I, well, I, here again, um, the starting point, uh, and the book, I think, argues this from the first chapter, the, the, and this is inside of historical criticism, actually, that the primitive gospel, as you just quoted Jensen, is that Jesus is risen, and therefore mm-hmm. Jesus is our saving Lord. That's the good news. That is, and when we try to parse that theologically, um, uh, that means that somehow in this event, the Father recognized the crucified, dead, and buried Jesus as indeed his beloved Son, uh, and therefore vindicated his uh, substituting himself for lost and dying humanity, um, and not only vindicated him, exalted him, and made him the judge of the living and the dead. That's mm-hmm. the good news, right. <laughs> you know, and, and if I said, Chad, if I said something to you like, like this little parable that Jens used to tell, I've got good news. Someone's risen. They're on the march and they're bringing in their victory. And his name is Joseph Stalin. That would not be good news. Right. That would be terrible news. Right. So it matters a whole lot that the one who was crucified is this particular Israelite Jesus who fulfilled the the surprising expectations of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 in order to be the one promised heir of David, the victor who will bring in righteousness, life, and peace. And so th- that that's the that's the starting point of theological reflection. We've and that that is where where theology is not philosophy, because mm. philosophy has no such starting point. Mm. Now that doesn't mean we can ignore philosophy, because philosophy, broadly speaking, is um, what Paul calls calls the natural man's attempt to make the best account of our experience. And any time we proclaim the gospel contextually, we have to be attuned to um, the mentality, the mindset, the gestalt, the the worldview um, of the contemporary audience. And that is what Mm. philosophy informs us of. But that would also mean, Chad, that philosophy is not perennial. There's no such thing as a perennial philosophy. As the Mm. world is moving, as history is moving, I'm not saying it's progressing. I'm just saying it's in motion, (laughs) right? Yeah. And we are are products of this, this motion ourselves as theologians. So we have to be attuned to philosophy. And the early Christians, when they were developing their articulation of the Trinity of the Gospel, had to deal with the predominant worldview, which was broadly speaking, Middle Platonism. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and it's um, it's sort of, it was uh, a real joy to read through your book in many ways. Um, as I, uh, we were talking briefly uh, before we were going, and just a little bit about, I was telling uh, um, uh, Dr. Hinlicky a little bit about uh, my background, 
and so like you know i was raised uh sort of southern ba or well southern baptist um and really you know the bible was the most important thing but then i did the uh, philosophy as an undergrad and i got sort of taken up in doing you know sort of more hardcore philosophy and thought that was so fascinating um and then at princeton i wasn't sure what to do with german kind of the 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 vestiges of german liberal theology um and it had really put me at kind of an impasse intellectually so i had kind of the um the biblicism of my background then i had some interesting philosophy that i'd done in undergrad and then i had kind of german liberal theology um and so uh you know so that put me into like i was like all right well let's try the patristics what can i learn from them <laughs> um and so i had enjoyed the the fact that they kind of blended philosophy and theology but i feel like even in the last like year or two i i had never read um Robert Jensen. I knew who he was in seminary, but I hadn't really read him. Uh, but this, uh, you know, he has that emphasis, the similar, and really actually it's, it's definitely what I saw in your book and what I enjoyed about reading your book um, was this return to the power of the gospel itself as, as the anchor and not wanting to have to have sort of another thing uh, behind the gospel that you want to get to. And so, I don't know, in a, in a, in a weird way, it felt like uh, a lot of culmination of a lot of the different uh, reading and, and thinking that I had done throughout my own kind of intellectual journey. Well, gee, I'm so happy to hear that. I hope this reading the book does that for a lot of folks who are struggling, you know, with the breakdown, more or less the breakdown of neo, the 20th century neo-orthodoxy and the resurgence of, of 19th century German liberalism in a lot of circles on the one side and the resurgence of medieval metaphysics on the other side. You know, so I mean, th this is uh, an enormous development. Um, it's like it's like the Oedipal context. The children have to slay the fathers, and so <laughs> if the great theologians of the twentieth end of the twentieth century, stemming from Karl Barth, were Wolfhard Pannenberg, Eberhard Jungel, and Robert Jensen, uh, now the younger generation seems to be saying, "Ah, oh, away with them! Away with them! Back to Thomas! Back! Back to..." Uh, the the early Augustine or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and and that was. I mean, those are. Th I I would. I will say that that's sort of uh, maybe where I found myself in the last few years. I, I, I actually find Aquinas really difficult to read. Um, I, I hate to admit that sometimes because I actually teach at a part. Part of my job is part time at a Catholic seminary um, and, and they have to read a ton of Thomas. And um, and I teach Latin to them to help them learn how to read the medievals. And then they ask me, well, do you read a lot of Thomas? And I say, I can't stand it. <laughs> but uh, but I love Augustine. Uh, and they're like, well, you love Augustine, you know, and he's an Augustinian. And I was like, well, sort of. Um, but but what I love about Augustine actually, and and I think oftentimes he might suffer some of the the, the problems that you have noted in the book. Uh, but I like that he's a rhetorician, um, yeah. and so I like I like the like so the charm of his words um, has always been part of the affinity I find with him. But as I was reading your book, I was thinking um, he has this section right at the beginning of Confessions uh, where he tries to. Uh, wrap his mind around um, God, and and so I thought I would read it, and I was I was just sort of curious what your kind of response would be because it you know at places you use Augustine, and then in places you kind of critique him, which I I think you know is all part of the theological project. Um, but throughout the book, I was thinking of this passage in 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 book one. Uh, chapter four, part four, he says, what are you then, my God? What are you? I ask, 
but the Lord God. Um, and then he goes through and he does the kind of thing that Augustine does, which he loves uh, antithesis or at least paradox. Um, and so he goes through all of these things. Well, you're most high, most excellent, most powerful, omnipotent. Um, but then... Then he gets into the sort of a contrast that he sees in scripture, uh, never new, never old, renewing all things, yet wearing down the proud, though they know it not. And, and here's kind of the, the, the contrast, ever active, ever at rest, gathering while knowing no need, supporting, filling, guarding, creating and nurturing and perfecting, seeking, though lacking nothing. You love without frenzy. Uh, you're jealous, yet secure. You regret without sadness, you know, sort of thinking about that idea of changing one's mind. Uh, you grow angry, yet you remain tranquil. You alter your works, but never your plan. Um, and, it, you know, it just goes on and on. But that kind of contrast of, you know, he it feels like to me, you could almost hear him saying like, I know all these things from the platonic philosophy that I've read. Um, and, and he's like, but you're also this God that I read about in the scripture. How do I put that together? <laughs> well, that, of course, that's the, the great question that my book is dealing with, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that is the great question. And um, here, I think that um, you have to make some logical or semantical decisions about the nature of these kinds of rhetorical paradoxes that Augustine is indulging in. Because a paradox can be taken. There are people like Tertullian, uh, credo quia absurdum est, mm -hmm. you know, for whom a paradox is a revelation just because it makes no sense. <laughs> and I, okay, so that that's one position. I would like to exclude that. Uh, there are, is a lot of 20th century existential theology that moves in that direction that I'm not interested in at all, because it makes talking about God just simple nonsense mm -hmm. um, that can make no sense. And that's the point, uh, that somehow that points us to a, the mystery of God. I don't know. Um and then, you know, then there is the idea that these paradoxes are somehow analogies. They can be translated into analogies. Um, I don't think that works. I think there's all sorts of logical problems with that. Uh, but basically, uh, the paradoxes, I take them to be what are called catacrestic metaphors. Mm. Catacrestic metaphor. Now, a catacrestic metaphor means that you assert what is rhetorically an apparent contradiction. That cannot be true. That's why it's attempting to think of it as nonsense. Uh, mm. But it is actually meant uh, to innovate in language, to reflect mm. a reality for which there is no pre-existing vocabulary. Mm. Um, and so such metaphors, the, the great one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we proclaim Christ crucified. Now, that's gotten to be a religious cliché. But if you think about it for Paul, it's a contradiction in terms. Mm -hmm. Christ is the victor. Christ is the Messiah who brings in God's victory and rescues his people. Christ crucified. That's like saying Joshua put to the sword. That's mm -hmm. like saying David slain by Goliath. That's why believing Jews have such a difficult time believing the Christian proclamation, because to them it is a, um, a stumbling block. Um, mm -hmm. a contradiction in terms until that contra that rhetorical contradiction is penetrated by the insight that it's referring to a, a novelty something that 
for which there is no pre-existing vocabulary. So then it would be, as the Gospel of Mark explains, Christ crucified. That means the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down a ransom for many. Something along those lines. So I think that Augustine the rhetorician is expert at preaching the gospel paradoxes. It's when Augustine, the religious philosopher, tries to make sense logically of these paradoxes that you see him reverting to the uh, axiomatic um, doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, mm-hmm. um, and that's in De Trinitate chapter 7, I think, or chapter 8, one of them there, where you know he, he um, talks about Christ being the wisdom and power of God. Mm-hmm. And objects, does that mean that God the Father has no wisdom and power? That can't mm-hmm. possibly right because of the equality of the three. Each have to have, not only have the identical, um, not only do each have to have wisdom and power, but it has to be the identical wisdom and power. And if you go with that and the implications of that metaphysical notion of simplicity, you de facto abolish any distinction between the Father and the Son other than the transcendental relations of origin. And then you get into medieval theology where you get arguments, well, the Father could have been incarnate because they're all three equal, they're interchangeable, it doesn't have to be the Son. You know, I mean, Thomas at least says it was fitting that it was the Son rather than the Father, you know, something like that. Okay, so I've gone off on a long tangent there in response to your comments about Augustine. I love Augustine, the anthropologist. Um, I think his doctrine of human nature and society is among the profoundest in the Christian tradition. And I think it's a great advantage to Western theology that it doesn't have the kinds of synthetic doctrines in the East that lead to the traditional problem of Caesaropapism. And we see how that's playing out today in Russia. You know, we have we have in the West, in principle, a a tension between the institutions of the state and the church uh, Mm -hmm. that hold each other in in check. Uh, And that is due to Augustine's doctrine of the two cities and also his anthropology that we are moved by our loves, our desires, uh, that all our behavior is motivated. We are beings of love. The real issue in life is not whether we love, but what we love, and so forth, and the whole hierarchy of values that he develops around the double love commandment. All of that, Augustine, is he's my Augustine. It's the <laughs> metaphysical Augustine that gives me headaches. <laughs> yeah, when you uh, when you started speaking there a little bit about uh, Augustine, I was reminded uh, that a quote that I've, I go back to from Rowan Williams uh, is, Augustine is most philosophically interesting when he's least trying to be philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually when he's dealing with the Bible, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and, and that's an interesting point too. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and yes, I think it is. It is one of the um, 
one of the fun things about studying him, and of course, if you if you have five million words that you uh, leave from antiquity or from the transition from antiquity, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you're going to say, um, and Correct. some of it is, is and some of it's going to be worth uh, keeping uh, and preserving, and some of it is, you know, maybe worth uh, uh, critiquing. Chad, um, we have the same problem in the Lutheran tradition. Uh, <laughs> Luther wrote a library, and you can find any doggone thing in there that you want, and you can make a Luther theology out of the most stupid things Luther ever said. <laughs> well, that, that's pretty funny because I uh, the I talked with um, Philip Carey about uh, one of the which book was it a book that he just did that has basically he moves from Augustine to Luther. Um, and what is the, I can't now I've totally lost the title of it, but either way, oh, the meaning of, there it is the meaning of Protestant theology. Um, and, and it's kind of funny that he takes two figures who, as you say, you could basically create uh, a theology or philosophy out of all of they have written. Um, and I know that I like, I know that he has dealt, uh, I, I know in the Augustinian circles um, that he takes a lot of flack uh, for how he reads Augustine. Um, and uh, I'm, it sounds like maybe the same could probably be said for how he reads Luther. <laughs> <laughs> but Phil, I don't, I can't comment Phil on that. A good, Phil, Phil's a good friend of mine and we're basically on the same wavelength. He reads Luther through Augustine. I read Augustine through Luther. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's very good. Uh, one thing that has sort of come up, uh, I've, I think I've, I feel like there's been uh, three different mentions of it, but uh, I, I don't really know. I don't know so much about Slovakia, but you you spent many years teaching in Slovakia, um, and and then there was a question, a little a comment there about maybe basically what's happening in Russia. Um, but uh, you know, it sounds like there's you've had a lot of um, engagement with um, kind of uh, com for previously communistic societies, um, or at least some of the, the threat of some of that. Uh, could you speak a little bit to how your theology may have been shaped uh, in your time in Slovenia? And what, what does that kind, of, uh, that kind of background of communism mean uh, for your theology? You know, this is very interesting, Chad, be, for me personally, because I'm a child of the 1960s. And I did my graduate work in the 1970s at Union Theological seminary in New York City. And um, I uh, have studied Marxism quite intensively. And in my wasted youth, I debated for dec a decade whether or not I was a Marxist. So let me just put my cards on the table there. <laughs> of course, for me, it was never a Marxist-Leninist. It was the humanistic Marxist uh, Marx of the Frankfurt School, that kind of thing. Uh, and Cornell West was a big, uh, important figure for me. He was on my dissertation committee and mm -hmm. so forth. Um, and um, I, in the Encyclo uh, Oxford Encyclopedia of Martin Luther, I have an article on Luther in Marx, the mm -hmm. remarkable fact that in Das Kapital, Luther shows up at important junctures uh, in his uh, treatises against usury, uh, which Marx is more than happy to appropriate uh, Minus the religious illusions, but anyway, so that so I I have this kind of interest in Marxism as a as a intellectual and historical phenomenon, uh, but I'm not a Marxist. I mean, let me just make it clear that I'm not a Marxist, uh, but I had this uh, lifelong interest in it, 
And when I went to, uh, my ancestors immigrated from, my grandparents immigrated from Slovakia at the turn of the last century. And um, when communism collapsed in 1989, uh, the, the repressed churches suddenly were able to open up again. And a flood of youth came into the theological faculty wanting to study. And they were overwhelmed. And as one thing led to another, I was called there to be a teacher of theology for those years. And um, there, you know, I saw the cultural devastation that the Marxist-Leninist regime, particularly brutal in Czechoslovakia um, at that time, uh, had been. And I had many personal discussions with uh, adults who had lived through this period, uh, relatives who had grown up uh, under the system, and uh, my own observations um, of what Marxism-Leninism had done culturally, religiously, economically, uh, and politically. Uh, much of what you see in Russia and Ukraine, I saw in Slovakia, how mm. a- after the end of the collapse of the regimes uh, and the rapid decision to privatize all the industries, how these communist apparatchiks uh, bigwig bureaucrats within the system in an old boys network snatched up all the property hmm. and created, became, you know, billionaires, oligarchs that we talk about. And then, you know, so the game changed, but the people in power remained the same. Hmm. And by the time I left, I told my frustrated students, you know, you're just going to have to hang in there. You can't really change the society until this old guard dies out. That's the price of having an unbloody revolution. You mm. can't settle things with viol- the revolutionary and violent justice. That means you have to live with all these bad actors who survived the collapse of communism and are perpetuating their power. Mm. So that has, you know, it, I returned to the United States uh, with a much greater commitment to constitutional democracy, which I feel is very much in peril uh, in these last couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot there. It's a very, uh, it's a very powerful story. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty fascinating to think about, you know, like you were speaking about your, your ancestors being Slovakian, but essentially being a child of the 60s and 70s or, you know, growing up in that kind of era. So having maybe more interest in Marxism, but, but seeing both sides of that. Yeah, I, 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 I don't really have. I don't really know how to respond other than to say uh, that's quite a that's quite a story, quite a testimony to have lived. Well, I'll tell you what, Chad. Let me plant a thought in your mind for a future podcast. I actually published a book uh, between apocalyptic theology and um, uh, philosophical humanism, uh, the 20th century sojourn of Samuel Stefan Osuski, who was uh, the Lutheran bishop. Uh, through uh, World War One, through the Czechoslovak independence in the 20s and 30s, then under the fascist regime allied with Hitler when he was ultimately imprisoned and tortured by the Gestapo for defending the Jews. Wow. And then his rehabilitation after World War II uh, until the Marxist uh, revolution in 1948 when he was finally um, uh, 
sent into internal exile several years later and spent the last 25 years of his life uh, incognito in a village in the country writing a great book. But I, I tell the whole story of the 20th century experience in Europe uh, under the figure of this guy. Huh. Fascinating. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, there's probably, uh, and and maybe some listeners would be surprised to even hear, as as I uh, probably was less familiar with, like, the role of Lutheranism in, uh, there was a book that was sent to me by Lexham Press, maybe, about uh uh, Lutheranism in Ukraine, I, I think it might have been. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I, you know, I know less about um, the spread of even Lutheranism broadly um, in some of these Eastern Bloc countries. But right. but yeah, being able to tell that whole story, I'm sure, is uh, very profound. Well, let me go back to my book, though, <laughs> which is what the podcast <laughs> is supposed to be. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> you know, I wanted to mention to me one of the most important things I think I do in the book is situate the Gospel of John in the mainstream of early Christian tradition. There has been a tendency to think of John as some kind of weird side development um, that um, is not related at all to the Synoptic Gospels, uh, and just it's some marginal Christian community, um, half Gnostic, half Docetist, or something like that. Boltman's famous theory of of a um, Mandian Gnostic saying source at the root of the gospel, then undergoing successive ecclesiastical redactions in order to make it acceptable to the main line development. Um, my teacher at Union was J. Lewis Martin, an mm-hmm. absolutely gem of a human being and a wonderful scholar. And his first book was on the Gospel of John, in which he demonstrated the thoroughly Jewish nature of the Gospel of John. Um, and also, he pointed out um, that the Gospel of John is a sp- spiritual theological interpretation of and that, that's what I really worked on. Uh, that the chapter in the book that you read um, argues from a number of different sources, not just J. Lewis Martin, uh, that John makes sense as a late first century uh, theological, spiritual um, mining of the, what's implicit in what we call the synoptic tradition. And that it is Uh, totally caught up in combating the outbreak of the early Christian uh, uh, docetism, which said that Jesus only appears to be a flesh and blood human being. Um, And that taking for granted that Jesus uh, is a mysterious person somehow um, related uh, to the divine, that the Gospel of John takes that as its truth from the first verses, uh, nevertheless wants to maintain that he is among us truly as the son of the God of Israel and truly as a flesh and blood human being. That's the witness of the Gospel of John. And that co- that, that segues right into, in the next decades, the conflict of Ignatius of Antioch with the Docetist movement. And that segues right into Justin Martyr and Irenaeus's and their battles with mature Gnosticism, dualism, and so forth. I think just establishing that trajectory 
um, over against a book like Walter Bauer's Orthodoxy and Heresy um, mm -hmm. was um, a major accomplishment of my book. Yeah. Yeah, well, it it's uh, it also reminds me a little bit of Father John Baer uh, just wrote a book called John the Theologian, um, and I think you know he's he's trying to at least uh, maybe <laughs> he may have more of an affinity to a certain extent with uh, the the sort of um, uh, well Eastern Orthodox Platonic kind of elements, uh, but but similarly trying to establish the the import of what it means to. Um, you know, sort of the charisma of the church and how that is proclaimed in in John. John the Theologian, a good title for a book. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that yeah, and, and I did. I found that uh, that whole uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting just to think about like what that means for canonization as well as as you also deal with. Um, so how how it is that this um, is what. Uh, sort of what we understand to be um, part of Revelation um, is helping us, in a sense, even to know how to read the synoptics well. Sure. And, you know, the, there that goes back to the first chapter of the book, arguing about mm -hmm. the role of the baptismal creed as a rule of faith. Uh, and you can see, you know, fragments of such rules of faith in the writings of uh, Ignatius of Antioch, they're all over the place. And of course, then they blossom by the time you get to Justin and Irenaeus. Um, uh, the rule of faith basically reflects the practice of baptism into mm -hmm. the triune name. Um, and this then provided a way of identifying the God of the gospel into whose care and keeping one is committed in baptism, right? And so then how do you test whether it is indeed the God of the gospel. 1 John 4, 1, do not believe all the spirits, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. And this is the test. Anyone who denies that Jesus uh, has come in the flesh uh, is of the Antichrist. And so that's the function, the function of identifying the God of the gospel that's significant for the baptismal creed. And as a rule of faith, then, it works in the canonization process. Does this particular writing uh, work as scripture because it accords with the rule of faith? And I think an approach like that gets us beyond the silly uh, tradition versus scripture kinds of arguments that have uh, polemics, not arguments, that have ensued from the time of the Reformation onward. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and of course, the the hard thing about a book uh, like yours is that there's there's so much. Um, and on the one hand, it it's very like you have a very clear thesis, um, but on the other hand, there's so much to unpack uh, because all the language is is very dense. Um, I. I guess I had some questions like, I don't know Wolfhart Pannenberg very well, uh, but you mentioned some backward causation uh, when you're talking about the power uh, or retroactive causality. That's what uh, that's the phrase, I think, um, at, when talking about the resurrection. But I thought maybe you could also just mention sort of uh, part of your emphasis that is so profound is that uh, the resurrection is an event sort of so singular um, that it, it sort of maybe fits that uh, the the notion of um, and now I can't remember I can't remember how you called it but but a a a, a, a metaphor that we don't have language for um, or you know that helps us to to define a, a um, an event or a, 
a being or something um, that that is it seems like a paradox, but it actually has a kind of sub uh, substance. Yeah, the, the, all of these uh, 20th century systematic theologians, Jungle, Pondenberg, and Jensen, are all dealing with um, the um, import of the historical criticism of their day that basically asserted that Jesus never thought of himself as the divine son of God or never thought of himself as the incarnate logos, that these notions are come about later on. Um, now, I don't know if I completely buy that conclusion of uh, 20th century historical criticism, uh, but I think we can bracket that problem and just acknowledge that they felt that they had to deal with the fact, what if Jesus never claimed to be the Christ? What if Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God? Is it still possible to say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And on what basis would that be possible? And basically, then they work with a kind of um, um, modal logic, I guess you could say, something like, uh, if Jesus had been crucified, dead, and buried, end of the story, then he was not the Son of God. But since Jesus, who was crucified, dead, and buried, was raised from the dead, vindicated and exalted, therefore he was from the beginning the Son, the Son of God. You know, and that's basically an, a, an epistemic point. It's not right. an ontological point. It's an epistemic mm -hmm. point. How do we come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And the answer is, we can't get it by going back to the historical Jesus. Mm -hmm. I actually find that congruent with the first gospel, the gospel of Mark. Mm -hmm. No one, none of the disciples succeed in the gospel of Mark in believing in Jesus Christ or following him to death, even death on a cross. They all betray, deny, and flee. And their restitution comes on Easter morning. Go and tell Peter and the disciples that I will go before them to Galilee. So epistemically, um, it's not like we could... Um, they're saying it's not like we can go back on a time machine and follow Jesus around the dusty highways and byways of Galilee and then draw the obvious conclusion from the evidence, this is the Son of God. No, Jesus was controversial, <laughs> and he got himself crucified. And the implication that he was more than a human being was exactly the blasphemy, according to the Gospel of Mark anyway, uh, that got him crucified. So it's a, 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 epistemologically, it's a wash. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's their argument about retroactive causality. Mm. Yeah, and and some of that epistemology is all is you know just to keep going. I think we've gone back to the beginning of your book several times, but that's where you kind of start off. Uh, is this question of a question of epistemology? What are the things that? Uh, what does it mean for us to know these things? And you use Augustine uh, on that point. So again, there's sort of a, uh, you know, t another thing that we've talked a little bit about, but Augustine's, uh, his own critique of, of epistemology as, as you, uh, yeah. uh, as you identified it there. Yeah. See, there's Augustine on the plane of anthropology. That's the <laughs> Augustine I like. <laughs> Well, very good. Uh, well, we are uh, approaching um, uh, about an hour here, um, and uh, I don't want to take uh, too much of your time. And also, I think my son may be getting up from his nap soon, um, and uh, we are on spring break. So um, I don't. I, I wish I had uh, more time to talk with you and be curious of of you know uh, maybe getting a chance to look at that other book. 
Um, but but really appreciate you taking the time out uh, to talk with me, uh, Dr. Henlicky. Yeah, thank you, Chad. It was it was a pleasure today.